you know, just this crazy obsession that that seemed to kind of steamroll. Uh, The more I did it, the more I wanted to do it. Welcome to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast, a look behind the scenes of the fly fishing world, featuring insight from guides and gear reps, conversation with resort managers, thoughts on entomology, discussions on fly patterns and destinations, and plenty of fish stories. Most importantly, it's an exploration of this lifelong journey we call fly fishing. Here is your host, Mark Hopley, with this episode of Fly Fishing 97. Well, it's my pleasure to welcome Jordan Ulrich to the show today. Jordan's with Interior Fly Fishing Company based out of Kamloops, British Columbia. I mean, the the, the compressed version of it would be uh, went into a fly shop, Troutwater's Fly and Tackle, when I was 17 years old. And, um, you know, at, at that time I had a Honda hatchback and I would stuff my deflated belly boat in the back and, and take it into some places that a, that a Honda crx isn't really supposed to go and um it it started with you know just this crazy obsession that that seemed to kind of steamroll uh the more i did it the more i wanted to do it and um i started in the industry when i was 17 you know i was still in high school and you know all my friends are graduating and and going to university and i just fished and it um was frowned upon by some parties but i knew you know that there had to be a way that i could turn a profit on it um sooner or later and i was lucky enough to you know i kind of got introduced with the guys at trout waters and i went in to pick up a dozen flies one day and they kind of offered me a job for the summer and you know that kind of turned into doing a bit of guiding for them uh still water guiding and stuff like that i started doing that when i was about 18 and um i mean i'll never forget coming home the first day realizing that if you know i could i could make uh, a few hundred bucks a day t- taking people fishing that was pretty much once i figured out i could do that that was um blew my mind you know i think that a lot of it comes down to you you find something that you really enjoy and you find something that that you know really gets you going just keep following it and and eventually you know it'll work itself out even now like you know i've got a guiding business and stuff now and and it's not easy but i think that when you really care about it motivates you to persevere through you know the times that are difficult and and you know when i get on the water with clients and stuff it's equally enjoyable for me you know working as it is as it is going fishing and i'm you know pretty grateful to to have something that i've found that i can have as a job that i you know i really enjoy doing like you said it's it sometimes it takes people until they're you know until they're 40 or 50 until they figure out you know exactly what it is that you know that they they really enjoy doing absolutely well you know what i can remember back in the day when you were at uh, trout waters in in Kelowna, british columbia coming in and chatting time with you and uh, i remember your your passion just being infectious that's good to hear uh i tend to i tend to ramble a little bit too much when i get talking about tying but um tying is that's another thing i do for work a lot too you know i'm trying to dial back on it a a little bit because it there's other things now that um i've got a little you know seven week old baby at home so it's hard to fill you know 30 or 40 commercial orders through a winter now and and still have time to to do all the other back-end work and and family time and stuff like that but um fly tying for me i mean i started uh i started you know just before i got on with the shop and i think i had a you know like a 20 dollar tying kit with a you know five dollar vice and stuff like that but um but for me the the creative aspect of um you know, really not having a, to, to put a limit on what you can do and what you can create. I mean, I still have, um, 
I still find time just as enjoyable now as I did, you know, that when I first got into it and, and a lot of people get burnt out with it, especially when you get into commercial time. But man, I mean, it is so much fun for me and, and the, the variation of everything, you know, everything from, from five aught tarpon flies to, you know, size 20 chronomids and, and everything in between for me is, uh, I, I don't know if I could ever get, if I could ever get bored of it, there's always something new coming down the line. So for those that don't know, uh, Jordan, so Jordan has his own uh, business called Interior Fly Fishing Company. So you kind of ventured, uh, is this a fairly new venture for you? Have you been doing this a while now? Uh, no, this, this is, I mean, this is really new for me. It's, um, you know, we, we found out we were having the baby and I've been doing, you know, lodge guiding and stuff like that the last few years. And, and I wanted something, you know, I, I don't have to quit and, and get a, you know, whatever you want to call a real job. Um, I, I basically sat down and I, and I thought, well, there's gotta be a way that I can keep guiding, but I can also, you know, I can be home. I'm, I'm not gone for, you know, 25 weeks a year, uh, with no cell service. Um, and, and the company basically started from, I was looking at how long do I really want to be an employee before I can, take full control over, you know, the business aspect of things. And uh, I'm fortunate to have people, you know, people in Kamloops area. Brian Chan was the one that that essentially prompted me. He said, you know, I ran it by him and he said, look, he said that nobody's really doing it. Um, he said, you, you got to get out here. He said, it's, um, you know, there's there's a huge market for it. And it's a big leap and it's scary, but um, it's very rewarding. You know, you have people that email from the States that want to come fishing with you for a week or whatever it is. It's, um, and, and aside from the guiding, we've got some travel stuff too. Um, some hosted, you know, destination, um, you know, warm water, salt water, polar opposite stuff to what we've got up here. Um, so are you, uh, are you essentially guiding in the Kamloops area? What kind of, uh, are we talking still water? Yeah. So to, like my heavy focus is still water. I mean, it, in all the, you know, saltwater flats fishing to, bass fishing and you know salmon and steelhead fishing but um for me stillwater i i think is the definitely the field that i have um the the most experience in um i feel like i've got myself to a point with um you know spent enough time at least well it'd be probably over a decade now of, of pretty much every spring fishing as many days as possible on you know on in this area and i think that the kamloops area you know it, it it's popular but i still think that it's slightly underrated for the the quality of fishery that we have here um just like like if i can just interject uh, jordan i don't think there's as much uh respect paid to how much knowledge there is in stillwater fly fishing in the kamloops area too. well that's a that's a good point right because the the stillwater thing is is very technical especially when you get into fish you know lakes that put out fish that are you know the, the ones that bring people to the area from all over the world are those you know everybody wants to catch a 30 inch rainbow but it's um it's there's there's a technical aspect to it uh that the frustrating part with still water is the fish are always there they, they, they are never going they can't get up and and walk over to the next lake you know they are always there but they you know especially some of these lakes they've become so conditioned um a lot of our catch and release lakes all these fish have been caught you know they they know it and um i think that you know a lot of studying a, a lot of knowledge and ultimately um time on the water is is trial and error that's that's where a lot of that knowledge comes from if somebody listening jordan 
wants to get a hold of you for your guiding service, what's the best way to do that? Uh, so you can go to Interior Fly Fishing Company, at, well, Interior Fly Fishing Co, so co.com. Um, you can follow everything from the website. Um, I've got all the contact forms, everything like that. A lot of day trip stuff. And now I'm looking more into booking the, you know, three day, five day, seven day packages, which make a lot more sense for people that are coming up from, you know, whether it's Washington or coming over from Alberta. Uh, We've got some good deals too with Stony Lake Lodge and Salmon Lake Resort where, you know, we kind of work with them a little bit to give people a little bit more than just the day trip experience where they can, you know, they can still have the lodge aspect. I basically show up, I guide them, you know, and, and they have their accommodations at the end of the day. Perfect. Well, that's a, that would sound like an amazing trip to me. Um, let me let me get back to stillwater fishing for a while. So you just mentioned something that that kind of piqued my interest as far as some of these catch and release lakes, some of these lakes lakes that are seeing a lot of fishing pressure. What what kind of strategies do you employ when you hit these waters that have are seen a lot of angler pressure? That's a good question because there's um, there are lakes here that that I mean they see more angling pressure than than 90% of the lakes in the area. Uh, a lot of it is due to accessibility and uh, popularity that, you know, you look at a lake like Roche. Um, I wouldn't use Roche as an example of a super technical lake, but, you know, you look at lakes that have gained a reputation um, that, that I think drives a little bit of that angling pressure. And obviously the way things are nowadays with social media and, and stuff like that, it's, it's becoming a little bit easier to get into these, you know, the, the technical trophy lakes. But at the same time, I don't have a problem talking about, you know, a lake like Kid Lake that has 15 pound fish in it. I mean, you can go there all day long, you still got to catch them. And, and that's, you know, that's the, the hardest part. But for me to, to approach a lake, um, you know, I, I try not to approach it any differently than I would, you know, a lake that's going to put out cookie cutter, you know, 14 to 18 inch fish. Um, I think for me that the, uh, the only thing that I change is my mindset where I don't feel disappointed if I don't hook a fish, you know, or, or I don't land a fish that day. A lot of these lakes where you see a, a ton of angling pressure, I think it comes down to becoming very meticulous in your presentation. You know, it's it's easy to to fish uh, a chronomid that's half a size too big. And in you know, you go to a lot of lakes like like Jacko or whatever, where where you've got a huge population of fish. Those mistakes, those aren't really you're not going to pay for them. But when you get into a lake where, you know, these fish have seen they've seen every fly in the book, your presentation just has to be that much better, that much more realistic. It's and I mean, I still have days where. You know, I'll, I'll go put into a lake like Kid and I'll fish eight hours and not touch a fish. I mean, it happens to everybody. If you spend enough time on the water, you are going to get, uh, you're going to get it handed to you a few times. But um, no, that's that's a good uh, that's a good question because it's easy to think that just because you're targeting really big fish means you have to change a whole bunch of things. But you know, I try to just um, you know maintain a, I guess an aspect of, of work presenting the, the best way possible that I can. And I mean, I've seen fish swim right up to a, you know, a size 18 chronomid that looks just like the rest of the ones that are hatching and turn its nose up at it and, and, you know, swim the other way. And it's, uh, man, those lakes are, are frustrating. Sometimes there's no doubt. I don't fish, you know, exclusively f- just for the sense that, you know, it is, uh, it's a difficult game. Sometimes the trophy still water is, one thing that a lot of people want, you know, when they book a trip, they want to come up and, and experience the, the true trophy aspect of things. And I always tell people, you know, you, you might get a fish that ate 10, 12 pounds, but you also might only hook one fish that day. 
Yeah, exactly. And that the re- the reason I asked that question just fr- from um, my experience, sometimes when you hit these heavily pressured waters, if you show them something slightly different, like even if it's just a a double rib or a slightly different colored chronomid that maybe uh, you know they haven't seen before, I think sometimes that kind of gets their interest too. Oh, that's great. You know, that's that's I think a big reason why you look at some of these patterns from the UK, like um, like boobies and blobs. Um, and mop flies and stuff like that it's it is a bug that they have probably not ever seen in their life you know something that that is a little bit different um you know and i'm constantly trying to experiment with things um you know like you said double ribs new we've we've started using um window film window tinting sheets as a as a chronomid body the last few years and it opens up a lot more doors than, than just the, the one color, you know, the anti-static bag that has become probably the most popular um, body material for, for chronomid tying. Um, it's, yeah, no, that's that's a good way to put it because showing those fish something they haven't seen, you know, and, and that goes for a lot of types of fishing. I mean, steelhead fishing, anything like that, if, if you can pique their interest just a little bit more than uh, the fly that they've already swam by 10 times that day. That's that can be huge. That can be the difference between, you know, make it or break it. Uh, a really good example of that would be last year uh, fishing past lake outside of Kamloops. I mean, there was I saw maybe one or two fish caught the whole day. And this is right up until 2 p.m. And my buddy put on a size four a uh, fly called a Bow River Bugger that's essentially a, a woolly bugger with ugliest, most uh, monstrous spun deer hair head. And he put it on type seven sink and started ripping it back as fast as he could. And I think he hooked eight or nine fish in the next hour and, you know, not little ones. <laughs> it's fun. It's that you're cracking me up because I, I know, I know what you mean. You put something, that's not going to work. Well, guess what? Those are the times when you experiment, right? Showing them something a little different, maybe a little d- different retrieve. And that, let's face it, that's, that's a meal and a half, what you just described there. Oh yeah. They, and, and I mean, I think a lot of it is, um, uh, a really good term, that I learned from a, a lodge owner in Costa Rica last week is they call it a pressure bite. You know, you pressure those fish into, um, into kind of feeling out exactly what it is because it's something so foreign. Yeah. Well, exactly. Like on, on a moving water, they're probably going to hit it because, you know, they have to be a little more advantageous, but I think on still waters, if you're moving something quickly, showing them something different, you, you might get some pretty good results. Well, and that's the thing. And, and I mean, those, those fish in still water, they, you know, like I said, they don't go anywhere, but they have seen, um, lakes that are only getting stocked with 500, 800 fish a year. Those fish have been in there a while and they have seen everything. They have seen every presentation in the book. Um, you know, having, having a little, a couple things in your back pocket is, is never a bad thing. And I've experimented with God, I don't know how many different flies and presentations that never caught a single fish. Yeah. I hear you. I do the same thing. Hey, so, uh, Let's talk early season tactics because, uh, you know, pretty soon we'll be out there. The ice is coming off, hopefully, in the next few weeks. Um, are you mainly chronomid fishing uh, early on or leeches? What, do, what are you doing? Yeah, that's a good question. So, I mean, for me, early season, um, I think you have to approach it with uh, the mindset that, that you might be up against any sort of conditions. And, and a really popular one is, um, you know, fish w- within the first few days of ice off, fish are keyed in on Daphnia um you know or they're up eating eating scuds in the shallows um there's a lot of different things that can happen at ice off so you know first off with the with the chronomid thing and i do a lot of chronomid fishing courses you know indoor seminar style stuff and um you know i tell people in in that those first few weeks of ice off um 
a lot of those hatches are going to be very sporadic. Um, they're, they're not going to last very long, and it's going to be a very small area for the most part that you're seeing bugs hatching. Now, it's, every lake's a little bit different, right? Some lakes, you know, some of the best chronomid fishing you see the whole year is right at Isoff. A lake just down the road, you know, it, it might not take until the water hits 55 or 60 degrees before it really starts to go. And um, I fish chronomids early season when I see them, uh, but I, I don't, you know, I can get a little stubborn with the chronomid thing, but um, I try I try not to get stuck in it. You know, really overlooked insect or, or um, invertebrate would be scuds. I fish them a ton, and some of the best days I've ever had have been fishing with them. Uh, for whatever reason, they, they don't seem to get fished all that much. But one of my favorite things to do early season is go in, you know, two to five feet of water um, where those fish are going to come in out of the deep water where they feel safe. They're going to come up and forage for a bit and go back down. And I'll pretty much just, you know, either fish a, a short leader on a naked floating line or, um, you know, just fish a small indicator and, and hang a pregnant shrimp or, um, you know, a flashback scud or whatever it is, hang it in super shallow water. It's, it's amazing the size of fish that will come up in, in that two to five or six foot column. Are any of your uh, shrimp patterns that you're fishing that way tied on balanced hooks, or is that something uh, that you hang vertically like a chronomid? When I'm fishing scuds, it's um, usually when when you see them swimming, they've got their whole body elongated, right? And and they're swimming in every which direction. Um, I have not experimented with a balanced scud yet. I did see somebody had one online, and it kind of got my interest a little bit. Um, the, the reason that I like fishing those heavily curved scud hooks is that's exactly what they look like when they're resting, right? Mm-hmm. They'll kind of curl themselves up. And um, so usually I'll just fish a, you know, traditional anywhere from a, you know, size 10 right down to a size 18 in, in the, the 2457 style hook, not trying to get too technical, but um, you know, that, that heavily, uh, that heavily curved hook that I think is really important because a lot of times when you're imitating scuds, you're not trying to imitating scuds moving all over the place. You're trying to imitate, you know, a, a vulnerable one that's, um, you know, maybe drifting or had just clung on onto some weeds or whatever it was. But um, that, that's something I, just so you're aware, I want to do that with the show. I want, I want it to be technical because I think, there's a lot of general information out there. And to be quite honest, I'm pretty bored of it. I, I love talking to somebody like yourself that can really get into the details. Um, yeah, you want to, we can, we can go way. Um. <laughs> let's dig deep. Let's do it. Hey, um, something I, you just said earlier, I call it the D word. You said Daphnia. <sighs> and for me, when, when if they're, <laughs> I hate that, those and those uh, glass worms kill me. But uh, if they're feeding on Daphnia, um, what do you think, is that a good time to maybe move to something a little bigger just to kind of get their attention? Or what, what can yeah, I man, do when that's, that's happening? Uh, that's, that's when I put everything else away and bring out uh, big, bright, noisy flies. Um, you know, I've mm-hmm. seen, I've started trying to fish these, you know, like blob um, blob patterns under an indicator now. Um, uh, but, but usually I'll just fish something big, something loud, like... Um, you know, big egg sucking polar chenille leech or, um, you know, a, a tequila booby or a tequila blob or, or whatever it is, something. Yeah. I mean, you're going to sit there all day trying to imitate a Daphnia cloud and it's not going to happen. Um, you know, and, and mm-hmm. even if you can perfectly imitate a Daphnia, think of the, the millions of naturals that you're up against. Right. Um, yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of just making those fish move by, um, you know, by showing them something totally strange because, 
Yeah, you can sit there all day long pulling your hair out trying to get a fish to eat a, a Daphne imitation, but it's just too much of um, you know, too much of a needle in a haystack for me. That's the, <laughs> that's well put. Hey, um, <laughs> so let me ask you this: Do you fish with a fish finder uh, on still waters most of the time, or or not? Hundred percent, yeah. And um, some people see it as 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 cheating, and I mean, if it's cheating, then that's fine. I'm I'm a cheater, um, but. Uh, I, I didn't for for the first few years, but I mean, having the ability to read that bottom structure is crucial. I mean, the first year I fished with a sounder, I think my you know catch rate probably went up at least three times. It's um, the importance of of not necessarily marking fish, but being able to see exactly what's underneath you. You might be somewhere that looks like the middle of the lake and you're on a sunken island that's only 10 feet deep that you would have no clue it was there if you didn't have a sounder. Exactly. That, yeah, because you can't always see what's going on, especially in uh, tea-colored water. I hear you. Yeah, you don't know, you know, I, I would pretty much just go off of how much anchor rope would hit the bottom when I dropped anchor, but um, you don't know if you're going to be anchoring in 3 feet or 40 feet. Um you can't use, you know, most of the time you, you can't tell where those shoals, where those drop-offs um, the, the transition water that those fish are going to use, um, it's, it's a lot easier to see when you've got a picture, you know, literally showing exactly what's below you. Well, and some of the fish finders now are so specific. I can, like the last few years, I know on mine, I have, I can't tell you how many times, Jordan, I've seen, you know, two or three rainbows and you just see a little cloud, which I believe to be Daphnia or something like that. And they're just feeding on. Oh, for sure. You know, and that that's when I'll go to something bigger because it's like, like you say, you can't imitate that. No, you can see those Daphnia clouds a lot of times. Uh, if you've got your sensitivity up, you know, seven or eight, you can see those Daphnia clouds on the sounder. And it's, um, you know, uh, another good thing that I'll use those finders for is um, a lot of times I'll find if, if we're fishing deep water, I mean, deep water is I would consider, you know, 18 to, to 30 feet or 20 to 30 feet. Um, a lot of times what will happen is, is you'll get fish that will feed fairly close to the bottom in the morning and um, as that hatch starts to progress throughout the day uh, those fish will kind of move up with the hatch so you might be sitting at you know 26 feet of water fishing 14 or 15 feet down and smoking fish whereas you've got your you know your other lines the traditional one or two feet off the bottom and you're not hitting anything Mm -hmm. yeah well for me and i've heard people people have said to me you know that just because you're printing fish doesn't mean they're feeding which which is true but it does give you at least a good idea of kind of the the depth of water um they're hanging at that day no for sure and and i know that if i'm um you know if i'm anchored in in 20 feet of water and i can see a ton of bugs coming up around me and i'm marking fish at you know 17 18 feet um, in a steady line, those, I mean, 10 out of 10 times for me, I would consider those feeding fish. Um, I don't get hung up on, on using my sounder just to mark fish. I mean, rarely, I, I usually turn it off once I get anchored up. I, I don't get too caught up in, yeah. in using it as a crutch to find fish, right? What kind of fish finder do you like to use? I have got the same Fishing Buddy 120 that I've had since 2011. Yeah. I got, I know my buddies have that uh, fishing buddy. They love it. I went to something a little, a little fancier to be quite honest. I, I don't, I'm not enjoying it as much. I like the portable transducer. I, I like that. I don't have to drill anything or, or, you know, I can just stick the post in the water and hit go. It is starting to fail me a little bit. I think I'm going to upgrade it a little bit for this season, but, um, 
you know, every time I think it's going to bite the dust, I go in and take it apart and wiggle a wire and it works for another season. So let's talk, uh, let's talk go-to patterns. So, so now you're getting, uh, getting into the early season, early season tactics on, on still water. Sure. Uh, what, what's your, what's your go-to pattern, you know, for the most part, if you were stuck with one fly in your box, what, what would that look like? Oh man, that's a, that's a heavy question. One fly. Um, I would go, I mean, it's for me, if, if I'm really having a hard time and, and we're not talking, you know, in a big chronomet hatch, um, I, I would fish, uh, you know, a size 14, um, uh, a maroon leech with a twisted marabou body and some dubbing up front and kind of brush that dubbing out, keep it sparse. Um, those flies have probably taken more fish for me than, than anything, especially early season. Are you hanging those on an indicator? Most of the time. Yeah. I've, uh, I've played around with the balanced ones too. Um, I don't know. I've never found that the balanced ones worked, um, you know, astronomically better than, than, um, just a three X long straight eye hook or whatever it is. So I tie most of mine just to, you know, traditional mohair leech or, um, or a seal fur or STS, whatever kind of dubbing I've got on hand here. You using a loop knot? Always, yes. Non-slip mono loop or a lefty cray knot. Uh, with fluorocarbon or what are you using for, for leader material? Yeah, so I think that, um, I mean, there's there's some fisheries where I don't think fluorocarbon is crucial. Um, you know, steelhead fishing, I, I never use fluorocarbon. I use, um, you know, 15-pound Maxima Ultra Green, but... 15 uh, that's for abrasion wow um yeah i mean i mean if i'm if i'm swinging flies for big fish i i don't believe that fluorocarbon is going to get you a lot more um fish to the beach but right. when you're fishing still water and those fish have got ample amount of time to inspect your presentation you might as well you know spend the extra couple dollars and and give them something that you know give yourself one more advantage even if it's not a huge one um and I run six pound everywhere I go. I mean, I don't bump it up for, um, you know, if you look at even even a 10 pound fish, its weight has been totally displaced when it's in the water, right? So it's, it's not a problem to get a, you know, an eight or 10 pound fish in quickly on six pound. Um, but I don't go lighter. Uh, I don't think that, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of guys that swear by the four or five pound, but Mm-hmm. I'm a bigger fan, even if it means I'm hooking a few less fish in a day, of getting the fish in, you know, as yeah. quickly as possible. Well, and not breaking off too, let's face it. Some, some of those lead of those tippet material get pretty, pretty fine. Oh yeah. No, I mean, six pounds is very universal. Um, and I kind of do it a, a little bit different. Like I, I don't use tapered leaders, um, very often. Mm-hmm. Me neither. I pretty much just run a straight shot of eight pound fluorocarbon for my butt section. And, um, and I'll nail not a piece of 20 pound mono onto the end of my fly line. And I'll pretty much just, just do a, you know, a, a double surgeon's loop and, and put a, a butt section of fluorocarbon to my swivel or not to a swivel. And, um, and then I'll just run six pound fluoro from there. I just find it sinks a little bit faster. I want to make sure I'm understanding that right. So you're, you're running f- fluoro. So right from your, from your fly line, you've got a, like a fluoro le- leader section on there. Yeah, exactly. I've, I've got a small, um, you know, a three inch section of heavy mono, um, with a perfection loop in it. And that's basically just to, um, eliminate the risk of, um, shredding the coating on that fly line. If I'm tying six pounds straight to the fly line, I've had it actually mm-hmm. pull the coating apart. Interesting. Do you find that pulls your indicator? 
Would that not would that not pull your indicator from the back end, or am I? Uh, no, I haven't. I haven't had any problems with it yet. Um, the the reason that I ditched the tapered leader thing is is I started to find that. Um, so the the first conflict I had with them was pegging up towards the top of them. You'll you start to get those kinks in that heavy mono at the at the butt section of a yeah. tapered leader, um, and that stretches your indicators out. But the the uh, biggest thing for me is I found that, that if I'm fishing, you know, 50 and 20 foot leaders, um, I didn't find that that butt section in the tapered leader, uh, once your tippet section gets longer substantially than the butt section, I don't think the butt section helps you turn anything over. I mean, there's, there's no other way to put it other than, you know, casting long leaders with, with indicator setups is ugly, whether you've got a tapered leader or a straight shot of, you know, just tippet, it's not a beautiful cast either way. Yeah, totally, totally agree with you on that. And the other thing that I would say too is that when you're with the tapered leader, it do, you don't have that pull down factor. It doesn't sink as nice as just a straight, a straight leader material. Exactly right. So if I'm set at at, at 16 feet with a, a straight shot of of six pound fluorocarbon or eight pound fluorocarbon to six pound fluorocarbon, I know that that it's hanging totally vertical. Right. That's yeah. um, you don't have to account for any factor of of um, a gradual sink with that heavy mono that you get at the butt section of a tapered leader. And it's a lot cheaper. Tapered leaders get expensive. So you're going to a swivel and you're going to usually, I assume, weighted chronomids, you're using tungsten beads or what, what are you using? I just use standard brass beads. Um, okay. I, I have used tungsten beads, but I, I don't find, I mean, I, I fish quite big swivels like, like 10s and 12s. Um, right. I'll use that to pull my whole setup down. Um, and keep it down right when you get when you get uh, a really windy day sometimes that uh, if you're fishing without a swivel or with a really light swivel it can kind of swing it up a little bit um, so I'll fish quite a heavy swivel and, and just a standard brass bead um, I fish smaller beads than a lot of people um, you know like a 1 16th or a 5 mm-hmm. and I'll pretty much count on that swivel to get things down sinks it a lot faster than just the fly itself and, and that's if I'm fishing, you know, indicators, um, I try as much as I can to, to fish, you know, one with an indicator and one with just a, you know, naked floating line with, um, you know, long leader straight to a chronomid. And, and, and that's the, the best way to get those big grabs, because when that indicator goes down, you've already missed that initial take, right? It's exactly. um, yeah. having that line in your hands is a lot of fun. Oh, man. And those takes can be pretty vicious, too. Oh, my God. Yeah. Some of them crack you off, you know, you just pinch the line um, a little bit too hard and break the fish off as soon as it turns its head. Um, that is super addictive. That's a lot of fun. But you have to have the right, um, you know, I find in shallow water it doesn't work that well because you're constantly hanging up on bottom. Um, but once you get, yeah, man, once I get over, you know, 18, 20, 25 feet, that's uh, usually when I'll start to do the naked line a little bit more. Oh, okay. Interesting. Hey, so... Um... You obviously spend a lot of days out on the water. I know, I know, okay, congrats on the little one, by the way. Not that that won't slow you down too much, will it? <laughs> no, I don't think so. Luckily, it's uh, luckily I've got reason to be on the water. I mean, I, I don't think I'd get away with just fishing 200 days a year. Um, you know, I got to turn a profit at one point or another. You got a future fishing buddy there, too. I do, yes. I'm very excited for that. I think we'll, we'll try to get her out on the water this year. We just picked up a boat. Um, uh, bigger boat last spring, so maybe I can set up some sort of a playpen crib setup in it this year. So when you were uh, spending that much time out in the water, have you had anything really 
odd or bizarre happened to you in the past little while that comes to mind? Oh man. Um, there is, I've, I've had things that I don't even tell other people because they blow my mind. Um, you know, like, uh, uh, winter still had eating a fly on the surface. Um, that was something I'd never seen in my life before. I saw that last year. Oh God, I would have to, um, uh, one of the best ones that I saw was, uh, one of my buddies guiding last year had, had a fish that, um, two guys had got their, their lines tangled together. Um, so there's two flies, um, attached at the bend of the hook and there's wind knots all over the place. And, uh, a fish came up and, and ate both dry flies, got one of them stuck in its mouth. And about 10 seconds later, an eagle came down and grabbed the fish, swam into the tree. The fish is still hooked. Uh, chaos. <laughs> That's classic. That's classic. I had, um, <laughs> yeah, it was, it That's was, funny. um, I'm glad it wasn't my boat cause I didn't have to deal with it, but, uh, it was uh, yeah, pretty bizarre. I had one last week where I um, uh, saw a 60-pound tarpon roll five feet off the back end of the boat. My buddy threw a, threw a fly, um, you know, basically dangled his leader off the side of the boat, and the fish did a 180 and turned around and came and ate right next to the boat. That was absolute chaos. <laughs> that not it? It's amazing the stories that... I think we could do a whole show just on fish stories, as you know, because it's just the, the ones that come to mind. I had something actually similar happen. You just mentioned those uh, kind of the eagle coming down, grabbing the fish. Buddy and I are out in the lake uh, behind Kamloops. Strike indicator goes down. Uh, all of a sudden, he's peeling line off like crazy. A loon surfaces with his trout, about a pound and a half trout. And then, swear to God, a bald eagle starts dive bombing the uh no. the loon and they had a tug of, <laughs> they had a tug of war on this fish i kid and i was i was crying i was laughing so hard he lost the fish the loon won out in the end but i'll tell you what it was uh wildlife stories are there's a Did lot the of eagle get the loon no 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 <laughs> he, he wanted the fish he wanted the fish i watched um it uh i watched a, a grizzly bear that would that would grab two sockeye at one time um uh, scrape them up off the bottom. She'd grab one in her mouth and then and then uh, do another handstand with that one in her mouth and pick up another one and bring them both to shore. Well, that's talent. She had it figured out. She's way smarter than the rest of the bears on the river. That's talent. You see things, though, that, that um, I mean, you don't even try to explain them. Uh, things that are just, uh, you know, you don't try to figure out what the odds of it happening are. You just uh, accept it for what it is. I brought my buddy to the Thompson last year two years ago, sorry, fishing, um, you know, fishing the, the steelhead fishery there. We just wanted to go and, and do it. I hadn't been in a couple of years and, and he caught a Thompson steelhead in his first 20 minutes ever fishing. Wow. Um, ever fishing that river on a dry line with a hair wing, Doc Spratley. Wow. Um, what are the odds yeah, on man, that? Things, things happen in really strange ways that I, I don't think it's even worth it to try to explain it. Just, um, just don't forget it. And, um, you know, it makes for a good story down the road, especially as time goes on, you know, the story starts to stretch a little bit. This is true. And 10 pound fish turned into 12 pound fish. Yep. And then, and then honestly, I don't tell people that bird one very often because nobody, yeah, right. A bird came after the other bird with your fish. It's like, really, what are the odds on that happening? But it happens. No, right. There's, um, there's, there's some things that, uh, I just keep to myself because people are going to think I'm nuts if I, try to tell the whole story 
I was just going to ask you, uh, so you mentioned you do some, some commercial tying. If somebody wants to get a hold of some patterns from you, um, how do they get a hold of you on, on your website or what's the best way? Yeah, they can, they can just email, um, you know, info at interiorflyfishingco.com and, um, you know, as long as, uh, it, it's a, it's manageable, um, I used to do orders of, you know, like 30 dozen, 35 dozen, but those days are, um, you know, I was 18 and I didn't have responsibilities or anything to do in the winter so i just take as many commercial tying orders as i could but um you know there's i i really enjoy um i really enjoy the the aspect of tying flies for somebody and receiving a message later saying that you know they had the best day of their life or whatever it was i try to tell myself that it was because of the fly even though it was probably just <laughs> a good day of fishing what are you tying at the uh, at the vice these days uh well i was i'm just uh, trying to pack away um the, the, I'm staring at my vice right now, and the, the hook that's in it is a is a 5-aught uh, TMCO 600 SP, but I'm going to take that out and start tying some trout flies. Um, I going to say, what the heck are you tying on that? Uh, well, those tarpon flies, uh, oh, Jack right. Cravel flies, yeah. But but those are um, not going to need any more of those anytime soon. So I'm going to get on. Uh, i got to fill up some micro leeches, um, marabou damsels, everything that I'm going to need for for ice off the the problem with commercial tying is that my own boxes are always empty no i i know exactly what you're saying or i I do that with buddies i tie them flies first then i'm like wait a minute can i borrow that (laughs) yeah exactly right it's like can can i buy a dozen of those back yeah it's true (laughs) but you know what that that shows me that you got passion for it you know your box comes last you're you're tying for probably the the guys your guys and gals that you're guiding for and you're tying for for the experience yeah, and it's important to me. Like I, um, you know, I, I don't advertise a, a ton of commercial tying. I do a lot of it through, you know, friends, word of mouth, things like that. Um, it's, uh, but no, it's for for me, it's more enjoyable tying for other people. A lot of the times, um, there's certain patterns I won't tie commercially. I won't sit down and tie deer hair gonfis and charge someone two dollars and fifty cents for it because it's going to take me an eternity it's it's even for myself i don't even bother i just go buy them that that's my pet peeve too or deer hair flies like that that need to be trimmed and trimmed and trimmed it makes a mess for one thing and uh no you're right it's, i'm well, glad to hear you, you say to the that end and found out you cut the legs off of it or something yeah oh yeah well trust me i've done <laughs> that hey um who's the most influential person in your fly fishing Oh man, that's a great question. Um, I mean, I owe a lot to Brian Chan. He's uh, he's uh, you know a good friend of mine, and and, and on top of that, an, an exceptional angler. I mean, I don't know anybody that has made much of a better name for themselves. Um, uh, there's one guy that that guides in the Seychelles named Jacko Lucas. Um, he probably is got to be one of the hardest working people uh in the fly fishing industry i read somewhere that he guided something like 320 days in a year one time wow that's insane that is like uh man that's that that is insane and uh, you know i watched some of his films and stuff like that and and you know i look at people that um you know it's it's fun to look at people that have really made it the fly fishing industry is is not an easy um it's not an easy venture, especially to turn it into a full-time thing. You've got to be very creative, you know. I mean, guiding is one part of it, but um, photography, writing, all that other stuff. I mean, it, it takes a lot to 
it's a lot of work to, to just, you know, to make a comfortable living. But, um, mm-hmm. but you know, it's, it's fun to watch, you know, other people that, um, there's a guy that I met last week that owns, uh, Tarponville fishing lodge in Costa Rica named Mark Martin. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the video of the flying Mako shark that, um, yep, yep. someone caught on a fly. Yeah. So that yeah, was in his boat. Um, really? So he basically has, I mean, I, inv- I invited him trout fishing, but I realized that when you've got, um, you know, Makos and tuna part of the year and, and giant tarpon the rest of the year, it's probably trout fishing is probably on the back burner. You might be surprised though. You know, I, I, I think that myself too, but then there's other people that are in different parts of the world that probably really want what we have. You know what I mean? Right. And it's different. That's, I, I have buddies down on the coast that, you know, I'm like, oh man, you're so lucky. You have, you know, you have steelhead all winter long and I've, you know, frozen everything all winter long. But then, then they're like, no man, you don't get it. Like you are surrounded by, you know, the, the best lake fishing in the province. And if it came down to it, I would, I would probably take the Kamloops area over anywhere in BC that I could think of. Yeah, I agreed. I mean, the East Kootenays Butte, but I'll tell you, um, I agree for stillwater fishing specifically, no doubt. Yeah. And stillwater isn't, you know, it's, it's not everybody's favorite thing and, and that's fine. Um, you know, I know people that, that only fish moving water, um, 12 months of the year. Um, and, and that's cool. I, but, but for me, I mean, Stillwater is, it's, is so much fun for me and, and you'll never master it, right? You can do it for three yeah. lifetimes and, and barely scratch the surface. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, there's just something about it. It's, there's a lot of familiarity with it. It's, um, it's, it's a whole lot of fun. And especially you hit those days where you're, you know, hooking upwards of, 40, 50 fish, and, and it's absolute mayhem, both lines going over each other all day. It's, well, the, um, the thing I think some people don't realize, that maybe maybe they fly fish, maybe they don't fish chronomids, some people don't like throwing an indicator. Um, for me, I come at it from whatever works, man. And if the, the first time you dial in a chronomid hatch, you will want to do nothing else. Oh, my God. It's, it's, it's um, totally addicting. I mean, and a lot of people see it as boring. Um, you know, like I, I always used to hear people in the shop say that it's it's like watching paint dry. But um, a lot of those times, you know, there might be a few things that, that people need to adjust in their presentation because there's small things that um, that that really can make the difference between hooking, you know, 30 fish in a day and hooking two or three. And it can be something as small as, you know, bumping down the size of your fly by by one size um, or moving your fly up two feet or, or moving you know, a uh, hundred yards across the lake or a hundred feet. Um, it's, it's yeah. not an easy thing to, to constantly have dialed in. Right. Well, and there, let's face it, as much knowledge as anybody has, there is some luck involved. Cause I, I can remember being on a lake in, in your neck of the woods uh, a couple of years ago and we were catching nothing and we'd been there for probably six hours. It's like, you know what, let's just dial it in and, and head out. And then, so, uh, one of us got into a fish. We figured out what they were feeding on. Luckily had four of those flies. And I swear we probably netted 20 fish each in the next hour and a half. Oh, right. Was- I, I wish that I could say how many times I've given up on a day only to pull in one last spot and, and have two hours of just, you know, lights out and you wonder what it would have been like if you got in there earlier. Yeah, exactly. It's, and, and when you, when you, experience that you have to appreciate it for what it is because who knows when the next time it'll happen uh 
these hatches are few and far between, but a lot of times I think too, the hatches, you know, the fish have finished keying in that, say that larval stage or the pupa stage of a chironomid, if they're taking them subsurface, you may not realize it till it's too late. Exactly. That happens all the time. And, and I think that a lot of it comes down to being adapt, adaptive, right? Um, you can have uh, you can have lights out fishing on a lake one day and go two days later, and, and it's a whole different game. I think that's what keeps me going back a lot of times. Stillwater thing, it's very ever changing. Hey, you know what, Jordan? I, I know you're a busy man, especially with the the new little one. I appreciate you taking the time. I learned a lot from you today, and hopefully, we'll we'll see you out in the water soon. That's all good, man. Anytime you want to come up to Kamloops, I got a seat in the boat. So I want to thank Jordan Ulrich for joining us today of Interior Fly Fishing Company in beautiful Kamloops, British Columbia. Thanks so much, man. Appreciate your time. Thank you, man. It was great. And any time that I can have, uh, you know, somebody to talk Stillwater, somebody to talk fly fishing with, uh, I, I'm, I'm always in. Thanks for listening to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Your feedback matters. Let us know if there's a person or a topic you would like to hear on the show. Email us at mark at flyfishing97.com. Until next time, tight lines and we'll see you on the water.